Well, if you would again uh, take out your Bible and let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. And we'll be reading today verses 4 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. When they were created in the day that the Lord God made the, hev- the earth and heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havalia, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Medallium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. 
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, God, that you would be with this, your servant, as the word is preached today. We ask, O God, that as we study this today, that we may come to a better understanding, that we may see the hope of Jesus, and that we may be encouraged in our faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a sense that everything in the world is not as it should be? Thought about that. The world is not as it should be. Surely you have had this thought. And of course, as Christians, you know why. You know why the world is not the way it's supposed to be. What ought to be is how God had made it. A world which was perfect. A world which is good. A world without death. Or sickness. Or sin. Or briars and thorns. This is the way the world should be. God made a world in which man was given charge over all the creatures. Man was to work in the garden. He was to guard it. Man was provided with life. He was provided with food. He was given companionship. Adam and Eve had all that they could need to live and be fulfilled in this world under God. God had made the world and all that is in it. He placed man in the garden with a multitude of fruit trees and plants. God entered into a covenant with man. If man was obedient to his probation, he would have life. If he disobeyed God, then he would experience separation and death. And so, in their original state, Adam and his wife Eve were made in perfect communion. They lived in perfect harmony with one another. They lived in perfect harmony with their Creator. They had all of their needs. They were in perfect paradise. All of their needs taken care of, of, and they were without shame. This is the story of how things were, or rather how things were supposed to be. And it is the story of how things will be again one day. Far from being a mythical or silly story, as many unbelievers would say, we believe that this is narrative history. This accounts for the facts of good and evil in the world. The scriptures account for the reason why things are the way that they are. And give us hope for what God is doing in redeeming all things to himself. The covenant which God had made with Adam sets the stage for all that will come after this. The fall of man into sin. Noah, the Tower of Babel, the call of Abram, Moses, David, ultimately the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and His second coming on the last day. That day of the Lord, as we talked about during our Sunday school. 
The failure of man to obey God's covenant of works leads to God making a new covenant, a covenant of grace, whereby He would rescue His wayward people from sin. Well, here now we return in our study... And we've already, we've been studying uh, uh, chapter 1 in Genesis. Uh, We looked at the first six days of creation. Uh, The narrative then moved from the, there had moved from the greater to the lesser, starting with the the whole of the cosmos, the formation of the universe, and then ending with the filling of the earth, with a special attention being given to the creation of the one who bears God's image, namely human beings. In chapter 2, the first uh, verses there, we are introduced to the Sabbath rest, the seventh day, whereby God rested from all His labors, and He gave us a pattern to follow. Six days of labor and one day of rest. And so now we come to what is really, in Genesis, a new section, beginning in verse 4. Now, the clue that we are starting a new section is actually a Hebrew word, Toldoth, which is translated in our English Bible as generations. You see, Genesis is actually structured into ten books, each one beginning with the word Toldoth. The generations. These are the generations of. And so verse 4 begins, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So this is the account of the generations of the heavens and of the earth. In this passage, the formula introduces the narrative which speaks of the beginning events. The creation, history, the creation of human life. And so we're brought back again, and in some sense we're going back again to the sixth day and sort of focusing in now more on the creation of man. Investigating the details of man being made as male and female and the provisions which were given to them. And so it says in verse 5, When there was no bush of the field yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. So what this is referring to actually is prior to the fall of man into sin. Uh, The Hebrew term bush of the field describes thorns and briars. Really, it's referring to any plant which would grow up with your food crop which cannot be eaten. And the other phrase, small plant of the field, is a term of cultivated grains. And so what is being referred to here is a time prior to the fall when there were no thorns or thistles or weeds or briars or inedible plants which would grow. In fact, there weren't even any crops yet because there was no man to cultivate the fields. Man hadn't even been made yet at this point. Man was not yet working the ground. And so again, this is focusing on that sixth day. There there were plants, but there were not yet weeds. And there was nothing that had been cultivated in the fields yet. And verse 6 even says, A mist was going up from the land, watering the whole ground. And so at this point, plants uh, didn't rely on the rains to grow. Water came up from the ground, perhaps uh, like a spring. And so the narrative gives us now a temporal context. We know the time frame in which the things which he's about to speak of take place. 
It was at this time in the beginning that God made man. And how does God do this? Look at verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. First of all, uh, we should point out that the chief actor in creation is the Lord God himself. He is the one who forms man. When we read that he formed man of dust from the ground, that is to say, what God does is God fashioned man, perhaps like a potter fashioning a pot. Now there is an interesting wordplay here. Man in Hebrew is Adam. It's actually the word for humanity or mankind for man, Adam. And he was made from Adama, that is ground. So man, Adam, is formed from soil, Adama, and then he is given to working that soil, and eventually man will be laid to rest in return to that soil. And so the Hebrew here actually shows a close connection between the soil, the ground, the dust, and man. In addition, the first man, Adam, was fashioned with a natural body. He was given a natural body for an earthly existence. He was made to live in this world, for he was of the same stuff as this world. Now this is important when you consider that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, shared in our earthly state when He took on flesh. So that He may secure for us as fallen humanity a spiritual body of imperishable glory. In fact, this is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. We just read it a a few minutes ago when he discusses the resurrection from the dead. What was sown perishable will be raised imperishable. Listen again to 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 47. It says, The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man, speaking of Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. That's speaking, of course, of humanity. And as is the man of heaven, again Christ, so also are those who are of heaven. Of course, this is speaking of believers. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so natural man, this is of course what we're speaking of here in Genesis chapter 2, natural man was formed of the dust. He was given an earthbound existence. He was given an earthbound body. This is the case for all those in Adam. But what is earthly will one day inherit that which is heavenly. That is, those who are in Christ Jesus will trade in this earthbound body, as it were, for a new and glorified body. 
And this is accomplished because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. And so although it may seem like this is mundane information, uh, maybe even some would think it's sort of silly. Oh, man's made out of dust. God fashioned us from dust, that, uh, from the dust of the earth. is actually quite significant information, for it helps us to grab what is to come. And so it is after man formed, or after God, rather, formed man of dust. Again, this is, and the idea is he's he's carefully doing this. He's he's taking great delight in in the formation of man. And then he breathes into him the breath of life. Now, now we should again point out that animals also have the breath of life. We see that in, in the narrative here. They are living creatures. But it is here the writer's intention to highlight that God is the one who grants life to man, and it is God who sustains life. You see, unlike the plant world, both humans and animals are described as living creatures. Both share creatureliness, and yet a distinction is made between man and the other creatures. Animals are described in verse 19 as having come out of the ground. There's a sense in which it seems that they're just sort of made in a moment. The same fashioning is not suggested with animals. For humans, though, it is said that God took special care in making man. Adam having the breath of life breathed directly into his nostrils by God. Special attention is being given to man. In fact, the narrative pictures a very warm and personal personal intimacy between the Creator with His creature, namely man. There's a correspondence here between man and his creature. The divine breath of life has been breathed into him. So you have man who is of earth. He has been crafted carefully by God. He has the breath of life breathed into him. Thus, he is a living creature. He is made after God's image. And so we are to understand the man was special. He's set apart. He's blessed by God. And man was to take dominion over the earth. That begins even with the naming of the animals. And he was called to work the garden. He was to guard or keep the garden. And by the way, work is a blessing from the Lord. This is not, work is not part of the curse. Work is a blessing and is part of what God has called man to. And and we see that man was to fill the earth. And so as as we read on in in the narrative, we read that God planted a garden in Eden and He placed His specially formed creation, man, in the garden. And we also read that the garden was filled with many, many good things. Verse 9, every tree that's pleasant to see, every tree which was good for food. And there's even a description of a river which flowed out from the garden and then split into four different rivers. 
Each river flowed to the four corners of the earth. That's the idea presented there. It's a picture of the dissemination of heavenly life throughout of the world. All goodness flowing out from God. This same picture is captured in Ezekiel chapter 47. This is the picture of the water flowing out from the temple into the four corners of the earth and even causing the sea waters to be transformed from salty water, unusable water, into good and fresh water. There's an abundant supply streaming from Eden, flowing out of this temple garden, providing food, healing with healing springs of living water. And again, this prefigures the living water which comes from Jesus Christ. Life, abundance is to be found here. This is paradise. It's filled with riches, precious metals, jewels are in the land, gold, onyx, medallion. And so the garden is rich in minerals, it's wonderfully fertile, there's life-giving water flowing from it, abundant food, it's beautiful. It is life-giving, it is life-sustaining. In many respects, this is a picture of heaven. This was was a heavenly place on earth where life is flowing throughout the earth. It is everything in which the world was created to be and in Christ will be one, one day again when Jesus returns and redeems all things to himself. And so man was placed in that garden to work and to keep. Again, one important lesson we take from this is that work itself is not part of the curse. Work is part of man's commission on the earth. Work is part of man's commission on the earth. Man was made to work. He was called to work in the garden. He was to care for the garden. God was not simply placing man in the garden to be waited upon. He didn't just put him in the garden. You know, here's here's this food, just kind of hang out. No, no. No, he was to cultivate. He was to plant. He was to work. And he was to guard the garden. He was called to be the guardian of the garden. And as, as such, as the guardian of the garden, Adam then should have driven the serpent out of the garden. That was actually his job. Of course, we're getting ahead of ourselves in the narrative. So the narrative describes this wonderful and fruitful scene. And verse 15 returns to what was first introduced in verse 8. The Lord placed the man in the garden, this beautiful place with many trees, with abundant fruit trees. Man was to cultivate. But there were two other trees in the garden mentioned. Two specific trees in the garden, which are marked out. One was the tree of life. And the other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so it is now here that we have the first real commandment from God to man. The first law, if you will, in verse 16. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You see, as man was put into the garden, one of the aspects we see is that man was given a will. Man was able to freely act. He was free to eat. He was free to eat of all the trees of the garden. This was allowable. This was encouraged, in fact. The instructions of the Lord are given as a positive expression of God's goodness. God has provided an abundance. Look at all that has been given to you. God had blessed his special creature with everything available in the garden. Adam could literally have anything in the garden that he wanted. He was given riches. He was given abundance. He was given the the springs of living water which were flowing from the garden. He was given all that the world could offer as a generous gift from God. God God is generous with his creature. In no way... Was this prohibition somehow God withholding from him? And yet, isn't that what happens with the fall? There was to be a boundary to Adam's consumption. There was one tree. There was one tree in which he was not to eat. This one tree is withheld out of God's goodness. Man was not to eat from it as God commanded him. Man was a moral agent, though. He was not a puppet. He could choose to obey God or not. Because, again, he reflects God. But man was free to choose to follow after God or to disobey God. And to disobey carried a consequence, namely, death. And so what we have here is really a covenant arrangement between God and man. This is the covenant of life, or sometimes it's referred to as the covenant of works. And the covenant, the covenant is actually quite simple. It's a very simple covenant. In his probation, Adam could freely eat of the trees which God had given, with the exception of the one being the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And this prohibition now confronts Adam with his, crea- his creator's ultimate rule. Remember, Adam was given dominion over the garden. He literally ruled over everything, except he needed to remember that he still had a God. Ultimate rule was the Lord's. Adam was tasked as the guardian. He could choose, but he does not have ultimate dominion over all of creation. God is the one with ultimate dominion. And the tree the Lord had made was good, because everything the Lord had made was good, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil belonged exclusively to God. This was God's tree, not man's. And this was the one thing which Adam could not have. To disobey God is to sin, and to sin is in part an act of unbelief. 
It is imagining that God is not good. That God is somehow withholding good things from you. To disobey God is to assert your own autonomy in determining what is right and what is wrong. To decide for yourself what is best for you, not what God says is best for you. Man is called to live by faith in God's word and promises, not in our own self-sufficiency of knowledge. For God is ultimately sovereign because he is God. And so again, what we have here is the first covenant which God made with man. If Adam was faithful to that covenant, not eating of the forbidden fruit, then he would be granted life. But to fail to obey the Lord would bring certain death. Now, although the statement, you shall surely die, in verse 17, may refer to physical death, and certainly this is in view, for death is an experience that we all have or will ourselves face, our own demise. Primarily, what is in view here is spiritual death. A death which entails loss of fellowship with God and with one another. And so the man in the garden, in a place of great blessing and resources, placed in charge of the garden, being told to work and to care for it, being given the freedom to eat of all the trees, but given this one prohibition, For there is an end to his dominion. Man was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For man was to live under the rule of God. Now, at this point, and of course we know, we know this this is all looking forward to what's what's coming, but we're we're not going to get ahead of ourselves. We'll we'll, We'll get to talk about the fall of man and his sin soon enough, will we not? But there's more here. At this point, we know that everything that had been made was good. But now we come to verse 18, and it's the first time we hear of something not being good. So we have the the, the giving of the law, which was also good, but then we have now this other thing that's not good. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. You mind, man was made in God's image. God was, is, is within himself perfect community. We believe in a triune God. Man is also to live in community. Man needs a companion, a corresponding human being. It says in verse 18 that God would make a helper fit for him. Now, it is interesting is interesting that many have taken this to understand that woman is some sort of some sort of sidekick to man right like like there's man and then yeah like well you know then there's there's women which is ridiculous by the way woman is not some sort of afterthought the hebrew here actually heightens the dignity of the woman which in the context of the nations surrounding Israel at the time that Moses delivers this to the people, would have been a radical notion. Certainly it's a radical notion in the Middle East today. 
May a woman is not some sort of afterthought. In fact, uh, as God contemplates creating the one who would be the helper to Adam, the force of the statement focuses more on Adam, Adam's inadequacy rather than on the woman. It is not, it was in fact not good for him to be alone. It was, necess- it was therefore necessary that Adam be given a helper. Man was inadequate. Men, we are inadequate. <laughs> now, this word helper, which is used of woman, and this is, some people have taken this to be derogatory. It's interesting because the term helper is used of God himself. So again, this actually heightens the dignity of women, far from lowering it. A woman is not some sort of sidekick to man, nor is she underneath of man. But what is in view here is the perfect fit, the perfect companionship, the complement to man. And so we read how God took all the creatures that he had made from the ground and he brought them before the man. Now the man was to name them. But from among all of the creatures which were brought, nothing was found which was fit for him. And the animals, as as wonderful as they are, are not reasonable fit companions for man. They are not like us. They fall short of the things which are essential for community. Now, of course, God already knows this. But God is demonstrating this for our benefit. And so here, uh, verse 21, it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, took out one of his ribs, and closed up its place in the flesh. So here we have, in, in verse 21, here we have the method of making woman. She is, like her corresponding man, a special creation by God. She is taken from man. And Adam, it says, was made by God to enter into a deep sleep. Which is to say that even Adam is not a conscious spectator to what's going on. He's asleep and was to awaken to a surprise. And we see that woman was literally taken from his side. In fact, that's really how you could... Translate the word rib is literally from his side. She is taken from his essential structure. Now, of course, there's a lot of silliness which is derived from this passage, uh, such as, you know, this idea that men have less ribs than women. Uh, This, of course, is not the case. And anyway, that misses the point. The woman is taken from man's side to demonstrate that she is of the same substance as he is. They are, man and woman, are the same in essence. They are made of the same stuff. And so there's a unity within the human family. And they are derived from the same source. They are equal. You'll note that she was not taken from his head so that she may rule over him, nor was she taken from his feet so that she could be trampled upon. No, no. She was taken from his side. For they are co-equal. 
Adam understands this immediately. He gets it. Immediately he gets it. For he says this, This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Adam acknowledges that this is his fit. This is his equal. She is the same as him and yet correspondingly different. Here is a fit companion for him. And so she is to be called woman, Isha, for she was taken out of man, Ish. And so again, there's a Hebrew wordplay there. This whole scene is significant in understanding that man and woman are fit for one another as companions in a oneness relationship. This is, by the way, something our modern culture seems to not be able to grasp very well. But in fact, this, um, this, this, in fact, this explanation is given in verse 24. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, we've already seen as we studied in the book of Ephesians how the Apostle Paul employs the body metaphor in order to, indi- to indicate the man and the woman's respective roles within the community. And to illustrate the relationship of Christ to his church, that mystical union of which we as Christians are a member of, the body. There's, a loving, there's to be a loving union between the husband and the wife. The woman was a wonderful gift to man and the man to the woman. And so we see that marriage is a divinely ordained and is good. When a man and a woman marry, they in some sense leave other familiar relationships behind and are joined together as one. And so now we see here the completion of all that is good in creation, right? It was not good that man would be alone. Ah, but now it is good. For now man and woman have one another. They've been given to one another. They have been placed in this paradise, the garden. They have an abundance of food and riches. They have been given a law. Everything here now was perfect. In fact, as the narrative ends in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was no shame. There was no shame because there was no sin. This is the ideal state of humanity. They feel no shame when they're being exposed, as it were. Here, their nakedness is, is an image of openness and trust. Nothing is hidden, for there is nothing to hide. They're open with one another and with their Creator. They trust Him and obey and are are to obey His Word. Of course, with their fall into sin, there is a loss of this innocence. No longer is there no shame. And again, we talked, as I began... The world is not as it should be, right? We do experience shame, don't we? We do try to hide, don't we? We have the experience of feeling exposed. 
But this is not the way it was always. And really this sets the scene for what is to come next, but we'll see that next time. Well, again, I began by posing the question, have you ever had the sense that everything is not as it should be? What once was will be once again. The perfect blessedness of the garden will be once again when the King of Kings returns. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a sense that we can say that all of redemptive history is leading us back on the garden path. But this will not only be a small space, but will be all of the new heavens and new earth. We, what, was, what, what once was will be again. And this is accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the temple of God, from which the rivers of living water flow to the ends of the earth. He is the God-man, God who took on flesh, who sets the captives free. It is through His sacrifice at the cross and through His resurrection on the third day which will finally and completely redeem you and I by faith in Him. What is wrong with the world is sin. Adam's sin. And again, we'll look at that in coming weeks. But you and I sin too. We have broken God's commandments. Jesus restores us to perfect union with Him. He does this by faith in Him. Beloved, if you are here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are not resting upon Him for your salvation, then I urge you to trust in Christ Jesus. Know Christ Jesus. For what is wrong in this world is made right in Him. What is wrong in your life? And I know, because it's true of all of us, that there's things wrong in your life. He, is, he, he makes all things right. All that is wrong in the world, He is making right. And He begins with your heart. Because ultimately, that's where the problem right now lies, is in your heart. And so if you don't know Christ Jesus, I would urge you to place your trust in Him, for He takes our heart of stone, and He gives to us a new heart of flesh. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, was the sacrifice for sin at the cross, the King, the Creator who came down so that you and I could be ushered into the new heavens and new earth. He does this by faith, by His grace. Just as Adam was to trust God in the garden, you and I are to trust and rest in Jesus Christ. And so if you, if you are trusting in Christ, then I would encourage you to rest in Him. We are to live by faith, not by the covenant of works, doing all that we can to be good, to try really hard to please God. No, we need to trust in the Lord, in His covenant of grace. For Jesus has already done for us what you and I are absolutely, completely incapable of doing for ourselves. So I would encourage you, If you don't know Christ, trust in Him. And if you do, then continue to do so. Rest 
in your Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder as we read in this Genesis account of the way things were. But we also look forward to the way things will be once again. We thank you for the Savior, Jesus Christ, who came and is setting all things right. We look forward to that day. Come, Lord Jesus. For now, may we be found faithful to your word, that we may walk in your righteousness, trusting in Christ, grateful for his grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.